Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending April 28th. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9 a.m., broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, Nat celebrates the joys of Visual Merchandising Day at the Op Shop, and Dr. Jen introduces us to the many selves of our movable personalities. We speak with actors Mark Diaco and Justin Hosking about their roles as feuding brothers in American playwright Sam Shepard's True West. Digger takes us through winter seed sowing, literal and metaphorical, and the importance of confidence boosting in the garden. And researcher Emily Secluna fills us in on the adorable and threatened fat-tailed dunnart. Nat blows the lid off a local prima donna chow chow, and we were joined by Megahertz footy coach Tim Harrington and rock dog co-captain Grace Gibson to preview the controlled chaos that is the Community Cup. Triple R. Yesterday I visited a fair few op shops. Um, unfortunately, I didn't find what I was looking for. Oh, do you mind me asking what you were looking for? Yeah, sure. I was looking for a clothes horse. Oh, indeed. Yeah, they're hot property at my house at the moment. It is. They're just constantly <laughs> occupied. We need another one in circulation. Because it's been such sunny weather, perfect drying weather, of Absolutely. course. Absolutely. You've got to be up early if you want <laughs> to get your clothes out first. Yeah, especially going into winter. Yeah, we definitely need a clothes horse. And a clothes horse is one of those items I find that they're everywhere until you need one. Like, I feel like they're constantly on the side of the road. I feel like people are constantly <laughs> discarding these clothes horses. I feel like I see them in op shops all the time. And I was like, no, nah, I'll find one. And do, and you, do you go into an op shop uh, excursion pre-visualising what it is that you're hoping to find? I definitely try to. Otherwise, yeah, I am, I've spoken, I guess. I am prone to impulse purchasing, especially if I'm tired or hungry. You know, I will, uh, I'll do some silly things. So I like to have at least like a key kind of element in mind. If it's not an item, then maybe it's a colour. Or a characteristic. Yeah, exactly. I see. And with the clothes source, I'm sorry, I'm I'm really fascinated by the clothes source, it Mm. seems. Um, Are you looking for a wooden one or is it plastic or is it multi-tiered? Because there seems to be a lot of different sort of structures and versions and formats. Yeah. Absolutely. A multi-tiered would be fantastic. Wooden would, would be the ideal. Ideal. But I definitely wasn't going to discriminate. I was going to take whatever was on offer. I would have even taken, you know, now in hindsight, a bit of rope, a few office straps <laughs> to fashion my own um, washing line. I would never expect to see a clothes horse in an op shop. Really? I mean, a clothes horse is something that you keep and run into the ground and then throw away. Oh. Like unless you fought for clothes in your life, you will always need a clothes horse and people's standards I feel don't change. Ex- yeah, they don't exceed the quality of a clothes horse. I can't work out why I would donate a clothes horse that was perfectly good. Here's the scenario. Share houses. Right. You could have an excess of clothes horses and mm. you moving out, Leaving the house, it's something that goes I see, to the option. And shop. you might be donating some items, including clothing, and you think, oh, I'll bring the clothes source mm. as well. Interesting. An item, maybe, I, I feel like that it would often be the case that you have not enough or way too many. <laughs> mm. People are probably drowning in clothes horses out there while we can't do our washing on the same day. Yeah. It'd be embarrassing, I think, to be in a share house and have your clothes horse rejected. Oh, like, yeah, like... like if there's a voice kind of, mm. you know, game where or, what you know, a voting system and people nominate their preferred clothes horse and you're like, <laughs> y- 
people are like, yours is trash. Yours, no. If we're getting rid of one, it is yours. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it would make like you feel pretty vulnerable. Like if the paint's vulnerable. peeled, maybe. Yeah, mm. making it worse. Also, why, what's so horsey about a clothes horse? I was thinking that as well. Why is it the horse? Clothes horse. I'm not sure. I mean, I would have thought a donkey is more evocative mm. of carrying the load. Yeah, maybe there's a business opportunity there. Yeah. A rebrand. A rebrand of the clothes horse. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of questions to be answered around the clothes horse. Um, and I'm loving the passion. Um, but I, I, yesterday, despite not finding a clothes horse, um, maybe I was never going to find one. <laughs> maybe <laughs> I was just way too optimistic. Maybe they don't, maybe no one donates them. I made that up. But I think I experienced um, what. I consider to be the peak op shop experience um, because I heard I went into one right near my house and I just hear someone from the back go, Bob, why is the mannequin over here? Okay, what's going on, Bob? She's got no pants on. And I realised that it was VM day, visual merchandising day in the op shop. For, so for those of you who are not aware what visual merchandising is, like um, kind of optimising the visual presentation of the products in a store, typically retail. And no one works harder, in my opinion, in visual merchandising than the op shops of Melbourne. Mm. Um, because it's, there's such a plentiful range of items that could be included and it's like how do you possibly synthesise all of this or summarise it into one yeah. one display? And and often uh, um, they there's themes, absolutely. So, yeah, the obvious is the window display in the op shops. Maybe you've seen it. Often they love to colour block, you know, it could be seasonal themes, mm. maybe what's happening in the city that month, you know. Mardi Gras was a big one. Halloween, uh, I'm not sure. Not all op shops would get into it, but, you know, Spring Carnival. Um, But, yeah, the op shop near my house, I think they rotate their visual merchandising. So you're quite impressed with their approach? I'm very impressed. (laughs) And it's one of my favourite things to do is to peruse the visual displays of op shop. It's a real outlet for creativity. And I tell you what, it's a show as you browse the op shop even if you don't find what you're looking for if there's any um kind of politics or issues happening within the staff and volunteers it'll bubble to the surface on vm day and what were you reading yesterday in the the story of the visual merchandising i mean overall it was good um bob was erratic and maybe um a little bit disorganized he needed a lot of wrangling (laughs) But he was keen. Mm. Um, there was maybe, yeah, there was a lot of communication needed to work with um, together as a team. Maybe there was too many people involved, too many cooks. But Bob was keen. He was redressing the mannequins. There was a lot of moving around. They seemed pretty unified on the theme. I, it felt like... Um, yeah, it was a pretty classic setup. There was some briefcases in the window, shirts, blazers. My thinking is maybe, I don't know, people, they've got end of financial um, year in mind and EFS themed. Um, yeah, but, it, yeah, it's a real treat. It's something I would definitely kind of keep an ear out for when hitting the op shops. It's up there with, like, 
you know, if you just see someone's wealthy grandma's just dropped off a bag of items, designer shoes, mid-century furniture, I think Visual Merchandising Day even tops that for me. Mm. Is is colour blocking? Is that what you turn? It's huge. Is that uh, basic or is that inspired? Because if I walk past and it's like, well, there's a book that's, you know, a, a total non sequitur, all these books together, mm. but they're all mauve along with a cardigan. Yeah. Uh, you know, is, is it just eye-catching and therefore it's done its job? Yeah, I mean, you, you use the word basic. I'd go classic. Okay. I'd go classic. Yeah, look, it's absolutely, I would say, it's one of the most common themes when it comes to or, or um, yeah, tools when it comes to the colour... visual merchandising, maybe for the less experienced. Mm. Definitely when you are dealing with multiple volunteers shifting rosters. Some people are more experienced than others. Sometimes you're just going to have to call it and go, we're colour blocking I today. This is a point of cohesion, but it's also an opportunity for emotional sort of communication too, because colours can be so evocative in this way. Absolutely. And you're going to see a broader range of stock in the window That's right. when you colour block. I you're going to so. see the knickknacks to the books is, is definitely a common one. You're going to see the scarves. You're going to see jewellery. You're going to see a lot of stock showcased so that is where I enjoy the color block I do enjoy you know kind of yeah I do enjoy like more of a a a whimsical as well a less cohesive um uh, display sometimes as well I love you know some really kind of ornate uh interesting um little uh what's it called um what are the what's the word like there was like a little china cat in like a, oh so a, the orna- ornaments ornaments that's the word I was looking for mm. yeah I enjoy that for- a clown you know kind of a deranged looking teddy bear oh, yeah you don't know it, it's it's very evocative it can be very evocative you're like am I frightened am I comforted I'm not sure mm. exactly visual but, merchandising but Bob <laughs> put some pants on that mannequin that's it, bloody insane yeah God's sake. Yeah, the half-dressed mannequins and you know you've stumbled into the op shop on a good day. (laughs) Woo! (sighs) That's right. Triple R. speak with author and associate professor in science communication at the University of Melbourne, Dr. Jen. Morning. Good morning. That was very formal. It was. (laughs) You would say that. You're a classic INFJ. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But also you're the unsung hero of Australian science communication. But I feel like once you get that accolade, you're no longer unsung, like it's self-cancelling. I think so too. And that was a couple of years ago, so I think we just shouldn't mention it. Yeah, you're well and truly sung now. Exactly. Uh, What's going on out there? Well... As you just alluded to, I thought we'd talk about personality profiling today. Are you fans? Have you got a favourite, you know, profile that you like to test, that you like to use? I, I don't, but I do know that there has been a lot of uh, theories presented and then discredited sort of theories around personality. And, yeah, I was kind of curious what the, the standards are at these days as to what is sort of a valid scientific assessment and what's Na- not. Nat was saying she's Chandler. That's what yeah. oh, that's right. <laughs> Took a BuzzFeed yeah. quiz. And... I'm all about the BuzzFeed quiz. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think friends Buzz... member you. Yeah, BuzzFeed's got to be where it's at, right? Yeah. I, mean. <laughs> um, I do like the Maya Briggs as well. 
Yeah, I think Maya Briggs is probably one of the most well-known ones. And I can't remember what I am. What did you say I was before? You're INFJ. I'm definitely uh, not an I. <laughs> <laughs> I'm as extroverted as they yeah. come. That's counterintuitive INFJ. <laughs> I mean, there's so many of them, as well as BuzzFeed. There's DISC and there's um, Maya Briggs, obviously, is one of the most well-known. But the Big Five, have you guys heard of the Big Five? No. So I can't remember. Can you, can you, Simon? Can you remember? I know the acronym is OCEAN. So I think it's openness, openness conscientiousness, yeah, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness. Yes, agreeableness and neuroticism. I think mm. are the five big ones. But like you were sort of saying before, Simon, we kind of. I mean, you know, do you trust them? Do you not trust them? Every now and again, you sort of think you hear this is the next big, um, most reliable, most validated one, and then maybe you hear along the grapevine, oh no, they've discounted that one now, and you sort of think, well, I don't really know if I should trust any of them. Mm. But um, now, as we were saying just in the corridor just before, you can't resist doing them, right? We all no. have this sense of self-awareness is a really good thing. Mm-hmm, definitely. I mean, I don't like being the idea of being dismissed, say in a job interview or if they're used in that sphere. It's mm. like, well, you're a, I don't know, let's say an INFJ. It's like, well, we're not looking for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're yeah. Like, well, let me tell you why you are <laughs> yeah. They were used a lot um, in the dating apps. I would always notice them. I, ne- I remember oh, really? that's a, kind of how I came to them initially. I was like, right. what are these acronyms everywhere? And, and I Googled all personality types. So it was like, this is what I am. It was kind of said with a bit of certainty. Which is kind of weird, right, that you would want someone to decide whether they want to date you on the basis of these things. But anyway, so I guess where I came to with all of this is that those tests, the fact that those tests exist suggests that we all have these fixed personality traits, right, Mm. and you get classified, you're an EN, whatever, FJ, whatever it is, Um, and that's just how you are. These traits define you. They're very difficult to change. It's worth knowing what they are because it helps you to understand the way you behave in certain situations. And it turns out that that's been thought of as true for a really long time. I found a reference to Hippocrates, I think it was about 460 BC, apparently came out and said that, yes, humans have a persona, this personality that can be can be defined and is made up of particular temperaments. But then last week I came across this really interesting paper I wanted to share with you guys. It kind of summed up, so Simon, what you're saying, kind of summed up this field in a way that I hadn't heard of before. And it argued that over the last 20 years, we've come to realise that using these personality traits is actually quite flawed because it kind of just depends what's going on in your life the minute or the 20 minutes in which you do answer the questions and perform the test because it turns out that um, your feelings and your behaviour are changing all the time. Minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, you're experiencing different external circumstances. You know, imagine just before I walked in here, you guys had all just had a big fight. Mm-hmm. I don't think you had. <laughs> but imagine if you had and I got you to do a personality test. In that moment, you might come out as being really grumpy, really rigid in your thinking, quite aggressive, whatever it is. But 20 minutes later, once you'd all had a heart-to-heart and resolved your differences, you wouldn't be feeling that way anymore. So, so thinking about personality or moods, there's like the weather sort of coming and going a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And the question is, do these personality tests measure personality, these so-called fixed traits, or at least relatively stable traits, or are they actually just measuring mood? 
And I think the the conclusion that this paper came to, and it gives a whole lot of examples, um, is that basically often we are very, very variable in how we feel on any particular part of the day. It's been given a proper name. It's called intra-individual variability, which is shortened as IIV, which I would just read as Roman numerals, I think, <laughs> of course, yeah. rather than thinking about that as a word. Um, but it turns out that this variation within a person as they respond to their day and things that are happening in their day that variation within a person can be far greater than variation between people. So it's kind of nonsensical to try and classify people as saying you are a this, particularly on a dating app, when (laughs) in half an hour you might be a this. Um, So one of the studies that they talked about was a 20-year study. So they measured people three times across 20 years. So they were trying to get the sort of long-term view. Um, About 3,500 people, so quite a good study. And for each person over eight consecutive days, three times over, they asked them about their stress levels, their emotions, how much they'd been sleeping, how much physical activity they'd been doing, what things had been stressing them out. You know, did you have a fight with your partner? Are you overwhelmed at work? Whatever it is. And then um, calculated how much of a person's personality trait, in inverted commas, what would be considered a personality trait, was just a passing emotion something that was a response to what they were experiencing at that time. Um, And it turns out a lot, a lot of it. So the example they gave was grumpiness. So a person might respond in a way that they sound really grumpy and you say, oh, that's just a grumpy person. They're probably grumpy all the time. They get grumpy in response to silly things. But actually half of it might be that, yes, they tend to get frustrated or grumpy about things. But half of it was just variability day to day because they just had someone, you know, cut them off in the car or someone had, you know, deleted an important email. I don't know, whatever it is. So it turns out that heaps of it is just you responding to your day and you can't necessarily be classified according to personality, but maybe you can be classified according to how variable you Mm. are in emotions, which is a whole different classification. Do the behavioural sciences sometimes distance themselves from this sphere of chat? Yeah, I think so. I mean, as we said before, there's definitely been some tests that might have been the flavour of the month for a while and then later get disregarded. But I think this whole idea about your intra-individual variability, your IIV, suggests that the way researchers go about collecting this information needs to change you know particularly if you're maybe asking people at the end of every day you know how did you feel today we don't remember Mm. the the ins and outs you know if I say to you Nat how did you feel at 10.05 yesterday you'd be like (laughs) probably hungry (laughs) (laughs) whereas so this is arguing that why you know new smartphone apps can be really really helpful because instead of asking people to kind of summarise how they felt over a time period, you can have an app that prompts you, how do you feel now? Mm. And then 10 minutes later, how do you feel now? And what is your feeling responding to? You know, oh, what's just happened in your day? Just by coincidence, Daniel was speaking before um, with Digger about stoicism, yeah. actually. And I suppose one of their maybe foundational values is that sort of ability to, to deal with... Uh, misfortune with a sense of fortitude so with a IIV score that might be quite low because there's a a little variability is that right? Yeah I mean I think it's a really interesting point because at the end of this discussion um, that I was reading they were kind of saying well so what's the answer is it good to have high Mm. IIV or are you better to have low IIV and what would that say about you and it turns out that high IIV could be a sign that you're quite volatile and that you're kind of changing your feelings all the time and that people think of you as unpredictable. Or it could mean that you're just dealing with some sort of chaos 
in your life at the time and there's unpredictable things going on that you're not accustomed to dealing with. Um, So maybe having high variability is really positive because it means that, yes, you can face difficult situations with with a sense of calm and fortitude and that you can, um, you know, kind of manage through your day. But you can also argue the opposite, if you know what I mean. Like you can argue it either way. Absolutely. I'm wondering off piste here, just conversationally, (laughs) but but it seems also that self-reporting and the problems there, but it can be maybe self-fulfilling. Like, well, I'm an ENFP and that's just who I am. Yep. And that might might have some negative consequences for your perception of yourself. Absolutely. And and I did it just before, right? You typecast me as an I, whatever, and I immediately said, that's ridiculous, I'm an extrovert. (laughs) But, of course, there are plenty of times that I'm not extroverted at all. Like anybody, I'm an ambivert, which means there are times that actually I would operate very much as an introvert and really enjoy time alone and get a lot of um, fulfilment and kind of nourishment from time alone. alone. Yet I typecast myself as an extrovert because when I'm with people, I tend to be extrovert. Right, mm. and if we're all going to be replaced by AI, it might be better to conceive of ourselves as more complex than maybe these tests allow. What are you trying to tell me? Am I going to get replaced? You're safe. Of everybody in this room, you're safe, Doctor Jen. Yeah, I just think. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's really fascinating to consider that this that we probably experience a wider range of emotions than we notice, um, which has been coined emo diversity. Love so, it. you know, we, we all should embrace the emo diversity of a day and recognise that typecasting ourselves is probably not helpful. And if you're compelled to do a BuzzFeed quiz, <laughs> just pay attention to what's going on for you in that moment in terms of what you're reacting to, what your circumstances are, how pissed off you are about something or how excited you are about something. It's probably going to have a big effect on whether you come out to be... Who are the characters in Friends? I've forgotten. Uh, Chandler, <laughs> Monica, <laughs> Rachel. Yeah, I think Thank if you're doing a you BuzzFeed qu- quiz, you're um, procrastinating. Fascinating, aren't you? Well, maybe. Yeah. Uh, God, it's so fascinating. And uh, but then it would be because I'm an ANFP. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, Dr. Jen, thank you. Talk soon. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. True West, Sam Shepard's black comedy about a power struggle between two brothers, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 1983 and it starred in its lead roles Hollywood and theatre heavyweights, including Gary Sinise and John Malkovich, and a Broadway run with Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley, each nominated for Tony Awards and who switched roles during the run. This same ambitious undertaking is now the task of actors Mark Diarco and Justin Hosking, who star in Human Sacrifice's remount of the modern classic and to tell us about it, the esteemed theatre makers join us now. Welcome both of you to Breakfasters. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. Now, tell us about True West and what it does for actors and why this play demands restaging at 45 Downstairs. Well, for personally for me, I think it's just one of those it's one of those plays that is so pure and so simple when you first read it and it, but it, it it asks of so many questions of you. It, um, you know, and, and playing both roles is really the whole plethora. It's the elasticity that you need as an actor to stretch yourself from playing someone that is domesticated to someone that is quite wild and quite raw um, is all the colours in between. And, you know, you, you find yourself being stretched throughout the process and, and it has stretched us as people first and foremost. And uh, in what way have you been stretched, Justin? Ah, my hamstring. You know, look, you know, we, we, I guess we're all a certain type of person, you know, um, and we come into the world and that's who we are. And 
you know, everyone's different. And so, you know, this, you know, we're playing sort of the, the full gamut of uh, the, the human psyche, so to speak, undertaking two roles. So naturally, an actor's going to explore a part of him that's not, um, well, for me, civilised in the world. And so the, the, the stretching is trying to, you know, break into the id or you know, the unconscious and, and, and shed some light on who I am that I don't sort of bring out into the world normally, you know. So, so in that aspect, it's... Uh, it's a stretch, you know, and then and then you know on top of that, there's voice and and uh, and physicality to sort of bring to us to a part that that you just don't carry normally in your in your in your own life, and so that's really fun as an actor, but also a challenge as well. Yeah, absolutely, and there there is so much to to grapple with with this particular play, as Daniel mentions, its status is is legendary and it grapples with so many um, so many themes. But I suppose if we could stay a little bit longer in the sort of the technical aspects for for, for both of you as actors kind of fascinated by the idea of balancing your own decisions and instincts with that of of each other and how you sort of manage that in, in the performances each night, sort of trusting yourself but also seeing what the other is doing and then sort of incorporating that into your evolving concept of the role. Yeah, well, you know, I think the best ideas win and, and sometimes I'll watch Justin come up with a part, you know, a certain comedic bend on what he's doing with a particular character, and I'll say, well, I'm just going to stick that. <laughs> and you've you got to have no shame. I think we've worked together uh, long enough to, to be totally brutally honest with each other, and, and that was one of the blessings of this production, is that there was no niceties in the room. We were just very upfront and very honest with each other about our approach, and, and we had to because of the changing of the roles. There couldn't be any decisions that were, like, keeping anything close to your chest you know it just had to be this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to go about it um so yeah uh the three of us myself Justin and Lee Lee um Mason the director we all worked together on a few shepherd pieces so we understood the man we understood the way he writes and uh I think it just it leads to a more honest uh depiction of it what makes a comedy black do you think um well it's the you know Looking at the, the dark side of life, I guess, um, and f- and not going all all the way into the dark without having a laugh along the way, I mm. guess you know, and it sort of helps relieve the the darkness. I mean, it's a broad term, obviously, but hopefully we all sort of get an idea of sort of the area we're looking at, and it helps cope with the darkness too, you know. So in a way that's not so heavy, yeah. And so the, the comedy sort of cuts through and and helps digest deeper themes or or meanings in a way that's a bit more palatable and you can have a laugh on the way. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And you were talking before about your understanding of Sam Shepard, the context in which it was created, and I suppose the place of True West within his broader work. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the themes or aspects of this, this work, True West, that really appealed to you and that you thought sort of belonged in a contemporary context too? Yeah, well... Um Look, I think Shepard wrote it. I mean, it's been written about, so it's not my idea that, you know, it's... it's True West looks at the, the, the psyche and the double nature of the psyche. So ultimately it's kind of the, the ultimate um, well-rounded one person who has the rational, the irrational, the unconscious, unconscious, it's all balanced. But, you know, we're humans and we, we, we don't really have that. Um, so it becomes a, a look at the human condition from a psychological perspective, arguably, and that's that's timeless. So the theme of humanity and the struggle for wholeness is is going to be there forever. So it sort of tra- and and that's what all great writing does. It transcends 
I guess, um, you know, the, the time and place and, and sort of echoes through all of eternity. I mean, look, you know, I'm here for 70 years. I can't speak for everyone, you know, but uh, that's what, when I say timeless, you know, who knows what's going to be happening in 300 years. But, yeah, but that, that great, that, and that's what this play does. And it's got the... Uh, the comedy and the pathos, but, you know, the darkness along with that. And I think that really is, you know, what life is all about to some extent. I think what Sam was getting at when he wrote this is that he was obviously, you know, this good-looking guy that had these Hollywood looks, but he was a a playwright in New York and he kind of had a stigma towards Hollywood and that system. And I think what Lee and Austin represent are those two psyches of his mind, one that was struggling with the... Of, of conforming to the Hollywood standard, to the Hollywood way of uh, pop culture, and and then this rural engine, this 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 wild uh, out in the in the out in the wilderness, and which one was the right way of going, and and that's where he kind of wrote both of these characters from. And um, it's a very dynamic self-portrait in a yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. They'll just split in the middle of the yin and yang. Can I ask us? It is. It's fascinating that you play both the characters. Do either of you have a favourite? Well, it's like more. asking a parent to have a favourite child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I love her more. Yeah. Well, it depends on the day. For me, it depends on the day. I mean, look, we're only a week into the run, but we've been rehearsing for quite some time. It just depends on my state of mind, I think. You mm-hmm. know, like, um, I think one's sort of down my, my type more. And so if I feel like... Uh, feeling a bit, you know, less, less um, dangerous or less... Uh, Risk averse, mm-hmm. you know that, that that character sort of fits me and I feel more comfortable there. But the payoff of taking the risk on the other one, sure, sort of brings me a, a bit more in vertical commas joy or release. So it sort of just depends on how I'm feeling, you know. Um, so there's no preference yet. Yet. Yeah. And is it strictly alternating? Or could you be yeah. like, you know what, today's an Austin day. Like, no, no, no. let's we, see if we, we can get part of this we, yeah, through. Right. We had to schedule it in for um, for reasons of... Uh, for the program. The Ticketing. Venue, yeah, yeah, sure. And whatnot. But <clears throat> to that point, I think, you know, I love playing Lee because Lee is just, he's just, you know, he's villainous and he's a lot more fun. But, you know, there's some nights that uh, Justin's playing Lee and, and you know, he... Lee is very much the aggressor of the piece, and he can pretty much have a free t- a free target at Austin throughout the night. So, when Juzzy comes at me at a certain um, velocity, I say, "Well, in two nights, I'll have my crack." <laughs> <laughs> so there's a preemptive strike already ready to go, and it's vice versa, and it just makes for a much more interesting play when it it's even in that in that way. Have you been cuz you mentioned mentioned it briefly like, you know, if he takes more of a comedic kind of take on some of the texts that you might say. Have have you been really surprised how the other has interpreted like a moment in the play or the character at any point? I think the audiences are always giving us a bump steer of what we think was funny and whatnot. It's okay. just you, you, you can never pick it. Like there's there's moments on stage where I never would have thought there was a gag somewhere there and just people are just cracking up laughing. Mm-hmm. So you just don't know. I mean, everyone's coming. It's, you know, it is subjective, so you just can't pick it. Yeah. But in, but in saying that, sometimes, you know, you know, Mark will do something and you go, oh, that's... That's really interesting. That's really great. You know, yeah. just stay in the scene, Justin. But something pops and you go, oh, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's great. And so, so sometimes it helps inform maybe not necessarily an actor's choice, but it helps deepen an understanding of maybe a character because, you know, from my lens, Mark's done something. You go, oh, okay, yeah, that's, that, that really informs a character a little, 
a little deeper than the way I saw it, so it helps enrich it a little bit more, I guess. Mm. And vice versa. With all your acting training, do you draw on specific uh, lessons learned or things that apply to the role, or is everything that you've ever done come on stage in one production? I think this is the culmination of a lot of the stuff that we've done in in the company, uh, personally. Yeah, it is a culmination of everything, but it is... um, you know, for me personally, this was a, the reason for doing this was uh, to change my process of not just allowing myself to stay in one particular headspace throughout the the duration of a run. This is something that you know we both talked to each other and we said, let's let's really try to do something, a dare to be great kind of move, and change our process and see if we can change our psychology on the flip of a dime and switch from night to night and still have the same detail and the same quality in the work and uh so far so good I think. <laughs> what about working uh, the place about brothers and maybe family shouldn't necessarily <laughs> work together where, where do you stand on who to collaborate with is it just a natural you fall in with someone or are you more strategic about your professional life and who you spend your time with yeah um it's a, such a small community you know arts community in, in australia and you know, um, particularly Melbourne. So I'd, I'd like to be able to sort of, you know, answer that in a way that, you know, I have choice in the matter. But you, you sort of just sort of take what comes to some extent, you know, really. Yeah. Um, but with regards to Mark and myself, you know, uh, we, we met um, a number of years ago now um, and Mark was running a, a night whereby there was um, different scenes just got put up in front of an audience and we sort of met each other there and, you know, admired each other's work, so to speak, and we both trained in the US and so we both had a similar similar training, so a similar language. Now we've that's morphed into more training in different aspects of um, different types of techniques but uh, that's where sort of we met each other and then we started this theatre company and, you know, we, we chose plays but, you know, when, when you look back... I keep thinking that the, the plays chose us. It just sort of fitted where we were at the time, you know. Um, they happened to be sort of, I guess, masculine-driven plays at the time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd like to say that... I mean, you, you pick and choose things now as you're older that you don't want to do, but it's such a small community, it's pretty hard to actually, you know, be too picky. Yeah. Well, tell us where, how many shows left in the run and where can we go? Uh, so we have uh, another two weeks to go. So um, it's at 45 downstairs, um, 45 Flinders Lane in the city. I mean, for me, it's still one of the best venues in Victoria. I think it, it has that, um, you know, off-Broadway in New York kind of vibe to it. Um, you know, they do tend to do stuff that is very mainstream but still has a bit of an edge to it. And, you know, they can get away with things that pretty much the big boys can't. So... Yeah, I love working there. It's great. Yeah, so so Tuesday through Sunday, um, yeah, for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and who do we get on Tuesday? Uh, I'm playing Lee okay. on Tuesday. I think we're getting a little... This is the longest run we'll have at before flipping. So I'd, I'll play Lee, I think, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Which is three in a row is like, oh, cool. I get a, bit of a, I get a run into it. I am late. That's right, yeah. So I own this part. But the downside is it's like after those three runs, like... Oh, now I've got to flip. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, that's right. What did I do in that other one? You know, You're apes. mouthing each other's lines. <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> don't worry, we have. <laughs> <laughs> some moments on stage where he said my line, I've said his, and we're like, okay. That's... <laughs> we are one. Well, the upshot, you can save each other too. If someone yeah. does go, yeah, oh, you like, you know, you jump in. <laughs> um, and, then, and then we flip on the uh, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. 
And which will begin on Sunday. Amazing. Yeah. Well, if you want to uh, take part in this extraordinary undertaking, True West is on at 45 Downstairs, and you can go to the website, 45downstairs.com. We've been speaking with Justin Hosking and Mark Diaco. Good on you, and thanks very much for being here. Thanks no for sweat. Yeah, thanks for having us. Triple R. Dirt, dirt, dirt. It's where you grow your plants. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Hey, you got some on your pants. Can you stop saying about dirt? Talking gardening on breakfast as we're joined by prolific sower of seeds and wild oats and so much more. It's Digger morning. <laughs> morning. Uh, now, what's going out on out there this autumn? Well, there's so much going on, but before I start, did you see the sunrise this morning? It's glorious. All you people driving in, in the car at the moment, just you know, pull over. Mm. <laughs> Don't ram up something mm. sexy face. But it is, there's some classic photos to be had out there this morning. Wow. It's beautiful. Unfortunately, I think we all might have just missed you it missed today. it all the what, time. What, what was particularly it's striking? It's just glowing. And there's been, uh, I saw on the news this week, there's been some sightings of, uh, is it Aurora? Yeah, the, the lights. Southern lights mm-hmm. um, in and around. It was almost like that, but as a sunrise this morning. My goodness. There's you know, just the... The burnt orange of that, you just can't replicate. Yeah, our time of day we get the moon, but we don't get the sun. <laughs> We've been getting some beautiful fog recently. Yeah, morning mist. Good, a yeah. little morning mist and it slowly lifts up. That's it. What's the relationship between mist and the day? It, does mist signal terrific day usually? Yeah, yeah, clear because it's obviously, you know, there's been a clear night, it's all air set down and then the sun is coming up and that's what gets it to lift. It warms up very, very quickly because there's no clouds covering the sun. So it's all everything's clear. It's yeah. kind of like, you know, uh, a super cool morning frost in the mornings. There was no clouds holding all the heat in and so it's all escaped and yeah beautiful mm. it's clear and if it if it is it misty in the morning does that mean watering is not necessary so much that day uh not so much because you know it really just sits it's just cold air sitting on the surface so it would keep the mulch moist so that's a bit of a buffer yeah so today you know what's going to be 24 or so um look your shallow rooted vegetables might need a little bit of a water after you know the night but not really it's it's like a little just a little insulation remember eider downs Oh, yes. Remember downs on beds? Yes, I do. <laughs> oh, actually, yeah. right. <laughs> it's kind of like an Eiderdown. That just that one. Li- I know. It just popped in my brain. <laughs> <It's there>. <laughs> uh, but, but speaking of winter veggies. Yeah. Um, so great time. You can still sow seeds. I'm getting lots of questions from people. Is it too late for this? Is it too late for that? Sowing seeds you can definitely still do as long as they're in two groups. We've got the root crops, the winter root crops. Definitely sow seeds of them. Don't try and grow seedlings because in the process of pulling out the little, you know, your seedlings out of the punnet of a root crop, let's say it's a carrot or a turnip. Anyone grow turnips anymore? I hope so. Yeah. I, I don't personally, but I really hope that there are many turnips. Yeah. yeah. It's, like the, it's the forgotten root vegetable, turnips. Um, and so they get damaged. That root system gets damaged in the process of pulling them out. So sow the seeds directly where you want to grow them, and it's time to do that now. So, you know, we've got parsnips, turnips. You can still do carrots and radishes. Anyone still into radishes? I yes. bloody love radishes. Yes. And they're like the biggest confidence booster. From sowing the seed to harvesting a radish should be around six weeks. Whoa. Yeah. That's like you, you can't go wrong. Instant return. Whether Results. you like them or not, it's like pull it straight out of the ground, grab it. It's like, oh, that's right. I didn't like them. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like a better garden. Yeah, but I'm, I've, you know, it's a sense of achievement. So if you're you know, feeling down a little bit, grow some radishes. Um, and then the leaf crops. All the leaf crops you can still sow seeds of. So common lettuces, but spinaches and silver beets and the giant mustards. You ever tried any of the giant 
Chinese mustards. I think so. Yeah, they're just these big purple leaf things, incredible. Because obviously with leaf crops, because you're just going to harvest them as a leaf, you're not waiting for the full season to finish mm-hmm. because you're not waiting them to finish their flowering and then to harvest the fruit from them. So essentially you're, you're going to knock them off halfway through their lifespan. <laughs> I'm talking mm. about mm. death this morning. Um, and so you only have to do half the work. And so it's a lot less time because the weather is starting to cool down. I mean, we've had a glorious few days. It's just been absolutely spot on. But it is going to cool down, peeps. There's no two ways about it. It's going to shut down. So... That's why maybe with uh, the fruiting vegetables, so if we're talking about broad beans and peas, um, cauliflowers, broccoli, they're all very slow crops. So the bulk of their growing should have already been done now. So if you haven't got them in, maybe buy some seedlings of them. Or if you've got a hothouse, grow them on in a hothouse very, very quickly, but then they're going to struggle because when you take them out of the hothouse and put them into the garden, which is going to be in about eight weeks' time, it is going to be cold, so they might just shit themselves and you know go bolt to seed. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, leaf crops now. So coriander now. Everyone keeps asking me about coriander. Sow the seeds now. Mm-hmm. Why do they keep asking about coriander? Ah, uh, because everyone loves to eat coriander in the summer, but in Melbourne you have to grow it in winter because of the cool season stabilizes it and stops it bolting. Because again, a lot of people have grown coriander; it bolts to seed. Bolting to seed is just—it's very small. It just goes to flower very quickly. There'll be listeners like, yeah, that happens to me every year. Mm. Don't grow it in summer, grow it in winter. Can I ask with like the lettuces, you know, the spinach, the leaves, would it be uh, preferable to sow it from a seed or like is, is it, would a seedling be fine at this time of year? Seedling will be fine again okay. because it's such a short time frame because, you know, you can start going in and harvesting lettuces again after six weeks mm. if, you know, they tick off really quickly. Same with silverbeet. We tend to harvest leaf vegetables leaf by leaf anyway, yep. mm-hmm. not the whole massive plant. So you can just keep doing it. And it kind of works in your favour as a gardener because, you know, you've got this small plant, you just take one leaf off it mm. and the plant responds like, oh, bloody bastard, like I've got to replace that leaf because they need more leaves to photosynthesise more to build enough energy to go to flower. Mm-hmm. So you're play- actually playing the game of what they're trying to do. You know, you're playing along with them. So it works in both our favours. Mm. Yeah. We so- pinch a leaf, they replace a leaf. We pinch a leaf, they replace a leaf. Actually, speaking um, of radishes, as you were just before, a listener has texted in and said that they ate a watermelon radish on the mm-hmm. weekend. It uh, looks amazing, tasted like a radish. Are they readily available to grow? Absolutely. And seed, yeah, any good nurseries will have seed packets of watermelon. So, yeah, literally as the name suggests, one colour on the outside, completely different colour on the inside, kind of pinkish. Yeah, beautiful. How important are easy wins in getting people interested in gardening that you're alluding to? Huge, mm. because, it, you know, it's a lifelong thing and, and that puts a lot of people off it's like there's just so much to know I don't want to devote my life to something I'm never going to get to the end of yeah. that scares a lot of people because there is no end to gardening um, so little wins along the way the confidence boosters it's just that little reminder of you know our connection to the natural world it's like I can do this I'm, I'm actually supposed to do this mm. the lettuces and silver beet have been huge for me and my confidence mm. because it's like something in winter I can make like yeah. uh, you know a silver beet or you know spinach pie it's like oh it's yeah, it's exciting. Well, what's, the, what's the actual feeling? I'm, I'm coming back to you guys with this letter, the question without notice. Like for me, it still gives me a buzz to go out in the garden and pick something. It's like, wow, I've mm. watched you and, and now I'm going to eat you. Yeah. Um, what is the actual emotion that you guys feel? Oh. In harvesting. Oh, I, when I observe other people do it, it is sincere, pro- 
I'm proud for mm. some reason and deeply impressive and it, it just feels like you're actively engaged in your own space. Mm. Yeah, there's nothing better than serving up a meal. This sounds so cheesy, but, yeah, from yeah. the garden for your friends. Yeah. And I'm not an amazing cook, but to, to be able to say this is from the garden, like it's, I feel like it's impressive. Mm. It's, it's like there's that little bit more love in it. Yes. Yep. And just talking on confidence, there's a listener on 0466981027 who asks, if I plant spring onion and garlic this weekend, is that going to work out or be a blow to my confidence? <laughs> no, that's going to work out. But garlic is a long haul. Remember, we're talking six months, you know, for your garlic. And your spring onions will work and you can grow them all year round. So, yeah, go with the spring onions for sure. Yeah. Is there a root vegetable that has a strike rate of success that differs from, you know, that isn't necessarily reliable? You have to really take care of it? Um, to get good at carrots, surprisingly enough, to get good straight carrots is one thing. Um, and to get good sizable carrots, the, the soil pH and the, the nutrient content has to be right. The soil structure has to be right. But it's really the first four weeks. If you don't get the moisture right in the first four weeks, yeah, good well. night carrots. Forget <laughs> about it. And do you know when you pull up a carrot, do you know what to expect all the time before you see it? Um, yeah, well, ideally, you know, you're seeing the tops. You know when you're growing carrots, when the top goes purple, that's when you know it's ready to eat. So it actually lifts itself out of the ground when it's ready. Mm. So people are always like, when do, you, when do you know a carrot's ready? It's like, well, when you see it, the top is ready. Um, I still get a surprise because of, you know, homegrown carrots too do tend to twist and turn i get a surprise at what is the shape going to be mm. because very rarely it's going to be dead straight yeah yeah so that's the surprise part. there was a text earlier today earlier this morning about dutch carrots do you have any wisdom on them um treat them all the same all exactly the same but if you know if you want to get good deeper straight dutch carrots your soil has to be very very sandy which tends to mean that it's low in nutrient which means the plant has to dive down deep to get nutrient, and that's how you get a straight carrot. Mm. And Dutch are the classic. Uh, there's a hardware question. What's the best way to clean your secateurs? Um, I completely dismantle mine, soak them in some boiling water for about five minutes, and then I use tea tree oil. Mm. So literally a big bottle of tea tree oil and just dunk them again into tea tree oil and just use a scourer to scrub them and get them clean mm -hmm. um, and then put them back together. So the tea tree oil is kind of a lubricant and a disinfectant at the same time because I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> no stupid questions here unless Digger says so, but there's, it says, look, stupid question, but can you plant garlic bulbs in a garden bed that also is home to an ant colony or will the ants eat them? Um, no, the ants won't eat them and it actually might piss them off and they might move away because oh. of that, that odour exudes through the soil. All right. But you will get bitten in the process. How? Question from <laughs> me. How big a pot do you need for coriander? Uh, probably one that's an eight-inch pot, 20 centimetres. Okay, all right. How do you know when to harvest spuds and onions? Okay, the spuds will die. The leaves will go all brown and die completely off, and that's when you can harvest your spuds. You can harvest early, like baby spuds at Christmas, but usually when it's down. And what was the other one? Spuds and? Onions. Onions. Um, well, any time, because you can have little baby onions, cocktail onions if you want to, put, to pickle. Mm. Um, but a full-size onion, again, the top will completely die off. Oh, boy, so much to get through. Oh, another one. Were you close with your father? No, that's just a question. <laughs> Everyone's interested in Digger's personal life. Uh, what else do we need to get through before we say goodbye? Um, well, just a reminder, you know, just that today really made me think about sowing seeds and remembering to sow seeds and remember the seasons about April amnesty. Obviously, it's forget-me-not. Don't forget to sow your seeds, but also don't forget um, about your subscription to this wonderful station. Beautiful. And finally, pumpkin now? No, okay. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Take it, thanks very much. Triple R. Triple R.
For feature creatures this week, we're joined by a research associate at the University of Melbourne, skull morphologist and fat-tailed Dunart freak, Emily Sekluna. Welcome to Breakfasters. Ah, oh, thank you for having me. Uh, now, in terms of fat-tailed Dunarts, mm. can you get us all exercised and excited about them? Of course. So, yes, firstly, it is a real thing. Mm. Sometimes people question that, the fat-tailed Dunart, bit of a funny name. But they are, in fact, a small, carnivorous, nocturnal marsupial, uh, and they're a little bit smaller than a house mouse, so they weigh around 15 grams, which is about the same weight as three grapes. Goodness. <laughs> so quite small. Mm. And now th- this was the object of your PhD. Yeah. Why? That's correct. So I set out to use this amazing little species as uh, a model species for some of their more endangered relatives. So they are a carnivorous marsupial from the family Daziridae, which means they are close relatives to things like the Tasmanian devil or the eastern quoll. So there's a lot of relatives that are uh, at the centre of national conservation programs. Absolutely. So I, I wanted to set out to use these guys as a model species, but then once I started actually researching them, I couldn't find them and then realised they were in fact a threatened species in their own right. Mm. And so what did you learn about how many uh, there are of them and where are we at now? Yeah, so the fat-tailed dunnart occurs across Australia in most states. Um, They are predominantly an arid-dwelling marsupial. However, in Victoria, they live in our basalt grasslands and that's a critically endangered ecosystem. So the basalt grasslands used to cover 30% of Victoria but there's now less than 1% of that habitat remaining. And so if that animal is existing in that landscape, you can imagine that that's, you know, there's going to be less of that animal out there. Mm. So they're currently now the last small marsupial of of our Victorian basalt grasslands, which is a critically endangered ecosystem. Um, And given 55% of Victoria is now freehold agricultural land, it means that the vast majority of this species is actually remaining on private property. And so this species is kind of in the hands of private landholders predominantly. So what would you want those private land owners to know or what should should people be aware of, I guess, when looking out for the Dunnout? Yeah, so firstly, just finding out if they're there, that's Mm. one step. So I find a lot of people who um, are actively out at night a lot on their farming properties, so for example, people who are out controlling fox numbers, that kind of thing, um, they're doing a bit of nocturnal activity themselves, so they then come across fat-tailed dunnarts. And I guess the first step is knowing what they are um, and being able to identify them from a house mouse. They do definitely look different. Do yourself a favour and Google them. They are so cute. Um, Big eyes, big ears. And, of course, they have a swollen carrot-shaped tail because they store energy reserves in their tail, much like a camel's hump. So they have a little fat tail, hence their name. So farmers can help them by, firstly, knowing that they're out there, knowing what they are, and, secondly, leaving habitat for them. So if paddocks do need to be cleared, which you know often happens when we're managing land, um, by putting those basalt rocks or those those fence palings, the old fence palings in the paddock or those corrugated iron sheets that might have come off the the roof of the tin shed, if we put those all to the side and don't just throw them out, if we at least just leave some areas of habitat, then some of these species can keep existing, um, you know, alongside these farming practices. And fascinated to hear, I suppose, about the work you've been doing in the conservation and the study, because as you mentioned, they themselves have been very vulnerable, I suppose, and... So I was just kind of wondering what the challenges were in getting them sort of recognised as vulnerable and potentially endangered and perhaps the work that you've done in this way to, to achieve what you've been able to do so with conservation. Yeah, thank, yeah, thank you for asking. I mean, 
Well, I set out to conduct surveys for this species in 2018 and 2019. So I commenced my PhD February 2018. Since then, I've been working with the species um, I realised that they were, that I believed that they were in, under threat in about 2019. So then I put together all the paperwork for um, threatened species listing and put that forth to our scientific advisory committee in Victoria, so part of our uh, Victorian state government environmental group. Um, that happened in 2020. And so now we, where we are in 2013, where we've got... Um, I've got the support of the Scientific Advisory Committee. However, we're just waiting on the Agricultural and Environmental Minister's signatures. So we're still, all those years later, we're still not quite there, but we're so close. Um, but yes, it, it's a, an immense amount of work, to Completely. be honest. So you went to the Western, the Werribee Western Treatment Plant. Yeah. Now, there used to be loads there. You turned up and there you couldn't find any. Were you at some point thinking, oh, maybe this is me? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. I was like, what is going on here? Everyone keeps telling me that this animal is is pretty common. And that's in fact why I've chosen this species as my study species for my PhD, because, you know, I didn't set out to work with some of their more endangered relatives because, of course, they're more endangered. They're harder to find. I'd Mm. rather work with something that, you know, to, to form that baseline data. But yes, I definitely was thinking, surely, Surely I'm doing something wrong here. But, I mean, once I surveyed... So the Western Treatment Plant, you raised that as an example. Um, That was the largest known Victorian population of fat-tailed dunnarts. The last surveys that occurred there... Uh, they caught well over 700 animals and that was in sort of the 70s. So everyone kind of references that. But unfortunately, unless anyone's checked to see if they're still there, um, then maybe they may not be. And in that case, they weren't, unfortunately. Mm. So how do you find something that scurries around and is the size of a couple of grapes? Yeah, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, you become nocturnal. <laughs> you become one with the art. So, yeah, the main way I find them is by spotlighting at night um, staying up till all hours of the morning and trying to I literally use a light, walking through grasslands, um, spotting them and trying to literally just hand catch these little guys. Yeah. Do you ever follow like the trail to, to like um, mice? Because I know that they're threatened in numbers and some are saying they like using the word vulnerable. While they are the size of three grapes, they look very vulnerable and cute. They are carnivorous and I've heard that they can eat mice bigger than them yeah they do that's kind of one of my favorite fun facts about this species (laughs) it's a terrifying fact i like that they're so unsuspecting but relentlessly fierce you Mm. know because they really are think of a tasmanian devil or or a tasmanian tiger a thylacine their extinct relative they're that in a mouse-sized little capsule so they're these ferocious little guys um they predominantly eat insects. However, they will actually nest share with house mice, which are an invasive species. They'll nest share with those over the winter months to keep snugly and warm. They'll share body heat. And then when it warms up a little bit, they have been known to then turn on their bedfellows and eat the mice. So, and I have actually, I've found signs of that myself, mm. um, which is, yeah, it's pretty hectic considering house mice are actually bigger than them. But they are, in fact, carnivores um, and they do definitely, yeah, often. They will bite. <laughs> they will bite when I'm when I'm working with them. Um, but I find it more endearing than anything else. <laughs> Did you expect to get, have nothing to do with the fat tail dunnart after yeah. your PhD and you, it's still in your life? Oh, uh, I think once you once you commit a good five years to a species, there's no hope of <laughs> of getting them out of your life. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think I wasn't exactly expecting to keep 
conducting research, I, I thought that once I uh, yeah did my skull morphology, my behaviour, my cognition, my captive breeding kind of studies on this species, I'd then move on to, as I said, the more endangered relatives. However, they are in fact in their own right threatened. So now I'm more than happy to keep working with these incredible little species and yeah. And just quickly, what's a skull morphologist? Oh, so they look at, <laughs> so I wanted to compare, um, I did a lot of captive breeding with this species. So ca- captive rearing of fat-tailed dunnarts. Um, and I wanted to compare how their skull shape was changing through breeding in captivity compared to their wild um, counterparts. So mm. yeah, comparing the cap- captive animal skulls compared to the wild museum specimens was really interesting because we can never perfectly replicate a wild diet in captivity, right? We'll do our best, but it's very hard to because we're obviously not going to be feeding them all the different invertebrates that they're going to find out in the grasslands and we're not going to be feeding them house mice, that kind of thing. So you have to kind of replicate that. But there's effects of captivity that occur um, on both morphology and behaviour. So trying to track that to make our best uh, judgments for endangered species captive breeding programs moving forward is a really tricky thing, but something I'm very interested yeah. in. Yeah, and do you use a cute little tape measure or like a vice? <laughs> or oh, basically, little calipers. So they kind of, yeah, move in and out and, and measure their little heads. And... <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Uh, all right, so where should we go to stay abreast of the status of the fat-tailed donut? Oh, well, hopefully there'll be more information available um across various radio stations and newspapers coming up. I'm expecting um, Ministers Stitt and Turney to come up with their decision very early May. Um, So, yeah, hopefully literally next week or the week after, we may have finally another official threatened species, which, of course, isn't, you know, it's a a weird thing to kind of celebrate. It's not an exciting thing, but it's exciting to get that recognition Mm. Mm. and then mean that we can start moving forward with with conserving that animal. Yeah. So, yeah, keep an eye out on the internet, on the, yeah, wherever it may be. I'll I'll try to pop up wherever I can. Beautiful. (laughs) Well, congratulations on your research and advocacy, Emily Sakluna, on the fat-tailed donut. Thank Thank you. you so much. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. I think this would be um, a bit of a talk break for the, the dog owners out there, the dog park frequenters, but I've got a bit of a scenario. There is a dog in the neighbourhood, I assume they're in the neighbourhood, that is continually doing their business on um, the nature strip at the front of my house. Yeah, just Due to the kind of consistency, the frequency, uh, yeah, I, I assume it's a local dog and their owner. And I maybe have got like a bit of a hunch of who it could be. I'm definitely not pointing the finger. Yeah. But um, I've seen them a few times while coming home um, from radio around, you know, 10, 30, 11. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I think this is it. Why? What are you giggling? Oh, no, just, no, I'm just very amused by this, uh, by this introduction. I'm oh. amused by when you say consistency. I wonder if you mean the regularity of it appearing or the consistency of the deposit itself. Both. Okay. I'm just trying to be, um, courteous of people yeah. who might be eating breakfast, you mm. know, now, but yeah, both. Absolutely. Daniel, thank you for bringing that up. I wasn't sure whether I was going to tackle that, <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, I've never really seen the dog until the other day. So the owner's kind of on the street. They're kind of having a bit of a wander because I'm so close to a park. Normally the dog's over at the park on the street. But I, I spotted it the other day and I was actually thinking, I'm like, do you know what? I was in a certain mood. 
I was like, I can be assertive. It's not something I would typically associate with my personality Mm. is kind of asserting myself in that way over an issue. So thank you, Dr. Jen, on her her talk break on the personality types. But I thought about it and then about saying something to this man, definitely not accusing him but saying, hey, is this your dog? And then I saw the dog. The dog trotted into my vision and, wowee, it was cute. Right. It looked, I don't know what breed it was. It looked like a tiny lion with like a squashed face. So I'm not sure any dog lovers out there. It was little, kind of that red auburny colour. But filled with love and it was so cute. Wow. It was the cutest dog ever. And I was like, not a chance. Like, even if that is the dog doing its business on my nature strip. You instantly granted it permission to exactly, do whatever it would like it was to do. Exactly, because it was so cute. And I wondered if that was a thing for people, dog owners or people who go to the dog park, of like whether there is like a crossover between the cuteness of the dog mm. and whether you tell them off or say something to the owner about well, picking up after their dog. And I look, absolutely, the onus comes down to the owner, but... My reaction in that moment was, never mind, that is a tiny lion Mm. with a cute face. And so anything you were about to say subsequently was just evaporated in the moment. Yeah, it disappeared. So, you mean... It's up to the owner to keep the dog grounded, the tiny lion with a squash face. Yeah, you're right. Otherwise the little cutie, you know, its ego gets too big and it runs roughshod over the owner and the whole community. Well, it did. It seemed too late. I mean, it was walking around like it owned the place. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, it could just waltz in, like, give them the keys to the it house. Is, yeah. Go take a nap on my bed if you want. Mm. It was It was that cute. It is a, it's a complex situation because, of course, advocating for responsibility and certainly there is absolutely the responsibility to make sure that anything that is deposited is collected at the time. And I know that this can cause all kinds of sort of disagreements and yeah. troubles amongst the community. But on the other hand... Certainly I've been in an unfortunate position of sort of looking after dogs from time to time. Yes. So as every dog is extremely cute, but you do walk around feeling a little bit like a, like a, the bear or something, you know, just greeting everybody. Everyone's so happy to see. Like, yeah. It's def- a different experience of strolling, isn't it? Walking with a dog. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like it gives you more of a social currency? Well, I suppose, yeah, just basking in the reflected yeah. glow of this glorious, like, yeah, beautiful... Little animal. Indeed. But but then what? It could, could flip on you on a dime. You could have a really moody dog and you could have the temperament, you know, of an angel and you're the social butterfly and then you've got a grumpy dog. Mm. Yeah, it could really change things. I tend to, Pick I up suppose... Pick your dog. Yeah. No, sorry. <laughs> I suppose I do have a bias towards dogs that aren't explicitly cute. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend to not withhold affection but maybe temper my enthusiasm Mm -hmm. because they get so much kind of love. Oh, absolutely. That I I gravitate more towards mutts. Yeah, and I'm absolutely with you on that as well. Um, You know, it it can seem almost a bit kind of banal, like, oh, a pure breed, shiny Mm. hair, look at them strut. That's why I'm just as surprised at my reaction to this tiny lion um, it takes no imagination to find some dogs cute. Yeah. yeah. And this dog, absolutely, there's definitely no stretch. There's no stretching here, but it's a showstopper <laughs> <laughs> for sure. And, yeah, it just gets you asking all kinds of questions because I imagine there would be some real dynamics. People would take on roles at the dog park. And it got me thinking about it because when I saw Kitty Flanagan's show, she was speaking about how she's the person at the dog park that's like, 
no, your dog just did that. It's just the constant debate of which dog did what. And I was like, okay, that's so interesting. So the arbiter of any disputes in this case? Yeah. And, and so I thought, oh, you know, maybe I should kind of crack down on which dog is doing it on. I mean, she's one to talk. Kitty's dog is extremely... uh, (laughs) Here we go. Dish the dirt. Has an extraordinary degree of character. And it apparently does, Henry, I think his name is, appears in Fisk. Yep. Uh, So, you know, if there's going to be... animal with a big head it's, wandering around. It's Kitty's dog. Yeah, waiting for other people to pick up its shit. It's Kitty's dog, Yeah, David. and if we've learned anything <laughs> in this talk break, it's that Kitty Flanagan's dog has a big head. <laughs> Melbourne's own Triple R. The most important date on the charity football calendar is fast approaching with the return of the Community Cup at Vic Park. This June, the Mighty Megahertz comprising PBS and Triple R luminaries will face off against music royalty, the Rock Dogs, in a special 30-year anniversary match, which now raises upwards of $200,000 for RecLink. To preview the big event, we're joined by legendary coach of the Megahertz, the preposterously overqualified AFL identity and hero of Triple R, Tim Harrington, and from Blonde Revolver, Future Suck and Rack Off Records, the co-captain this year of the Rock Dogs, Grace Gibson. Welcome both of you to Breakfasters. Whoa, thank you. Thank you so much. Makes it a bit official, doesn't it? It's all happening now. It is, and we're going to happen as quick as we possibly can because we have had um, the last two... We hold the record for the last two years. We've got the cup for the last two years, and the Rock Dogs are wanting to take that office. Grace, is that right? (laughs) That's right, but I feel like we're the underdogs this year, which kind of gives us a little bit oh, of a leg up. Yeah, big time. No, yeah, no. we're definitely bringing it home this year. <laughs> Tim, take us back to your involvement with this iconic day. I started playing in 2003 and played for three or four years, I think, with a lot of ex-Triple um, R illuminaries. Plus, I saw on the, on the record that I looked at, uh, that day that Ross Knight played, um, hey. Wally Meany played that day, um, so and Tim Rogers played along the along the journey too. So I have played footy against some of those my idols in um, in bands. But since then I've been coaching. So for twenty years, close to twenty years, while co-coaching, we've had a lot of um, assistant people along the way. So um, yeah, it's been a long time, twenty years. Yeah, yeah. and Grace, what's your approach? Um, my I played for the first time last year, so. A uh, little bit of a newbie to it, but have been going to the Community Cup for years and years and years. How and did just, it feel, um, making that transition from crowds uh, on the field? Oh, it was so exciting. It's something that, like, you know, you always look at and, like, wish that you could do or want to do. And, um, yeah, it was just so exciting and definitely shouldn't have been playing footy in front of that many people. <laughs> <laughs> of course you should. Grace and I actually played against each other, you were saying. And yeah, we did. Um, ruthless on the field, you were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so was Nat. I've got to watch out again this year, I think. <laughs> Tell us about the uh, – because it sells out fast. What, mm. what do you think the Community Cup means to the listenership and the music community and the, the local community radio scene? The football part is just a sideline, really, in my view. Uh, I'm not sure how, over the years, we've actually sustained the entertainment part of it because the footy's only, what, a, a small part of the game. Uh, but the, the bands, the fact that people get together, they can bring their pets. Um, there's a lot of young people there. We get all sorts of other entertainment on the day, on the ground, pizza deliveries. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that we're allowed streakers anymore, but that, <laughs> that still yeah. happens. They always give it a go. <laughs> yeah, but it's just a point of difference. We, we, it is a celebration of football, but it's a celebration of music, but it's more of a celebration of community and getting together for raising funds for Red League. So I think people are pretty rusted on 
um, come each year, but it sells out, so you've got to get in and get your ticket yeah, smarter. Yeah, totally. Uh, can you give us a peek behind the curtain, Grace and Tim, about what your role is going to be uh, this year and, you know, what you have in store for, for us megahertz? Well, as a coach, I'll speak as a coach, Grace, maybe you as a player, um, it's like herding cats, really. Um, <laughs> we've got all sorts of different personalities. We have some great, loud people. We've got people who just want to be quiet and run out in the field and not be um, too uh, disruptive on what goes on the field. Uh, so it's, it's, it's just trying to organise, I suppose, mm. and, um, and entertain because we're really there to make sure the crowd come and enjoy. So, um, yeah, as a coach, you just want to make people feel comfortable and just organise more than anything else. And a bit of insight, how are the megahertz going in the, in the training? Oh, yeah, has the that begun? Yeah, well, Simon just said, has it begun? Yes, we have begun. Um, we need some numbers there. I'm looking around the room to say um, <laughs> we will have representation from this room there very soon. Sunday, I'm there. Yes, Sunday, you're there. So, um, yeah, it has begun and we're, we're pumped and we're underway. And, Grace, what are, you, what are your KPIs? <laughs> to win. <laughs> no, um, I think we're, we're led out by our legend coach this year, Cash Savage. So it's going to be, um, yeah, massive game. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're there to rock and we're there to win. Yeah, steal the hat trick. Oh, I think we can do it. Tim, what are your yes. observations of uh, when, and you can stick the boot in here a little bit, of, of when musos come together versus the camaraderie maybe of the broadcasting community? Yeah, so we, we pride ourselves, I'm saying we as in the, the mega, sorry, <laughs> um, pride ourselves in being the people who carry the musicians. We actually present the musicians to the public. <laughs> so on the day, we feel like we have a chance to actually get back at the musos and say we are the, the extroverts and the, the ones who really should get much more acclaim than what we do um, because we, we do carry and, and support musicians. We get looked on quite badly. It's sustained from some of the musicians. So it's a chance to actually get back at them on the day. Mm. I'm not sure if that how, that's how it feels to you. I feel like we're actually at a little bit of a disadvantage in that way because uh, because there's kind of a smaller pool of PBS, Triple R presenters all together. You all kind of know each other already and bounce off us, each other already. Where the Rock Dogs, it's kind of all these people coming together, maybe meeting each other for the first time and having to really get in there and do sport, which is what musicians do not do generally. (laughs) But I suppose I'm stating the absolute obvious, but with the Community Cup, it is, you know, with that kind of friendly sort of competitive uh, aspect to it, still very much a celebration of the interaction of all elements of kind of culture and music and in the city. And I suppose, yeah, as Daniel was saying, and you were reflecting on the history, there's so much that's changed over those 30 years, but I suppose there's real constants that remain and it's a beautiful opportunity at 30 years to kind of really celebrate the links and the interactions that I suppose Melbourne is unique for in a way. Yeah, yeah. so it does bring a lot of um, the best of Melbourne together. The the music scene in Melbourne is just huge as we all know Um, but Melbourne is a a sporting capital so to bring those things together and then have a celebration at the end with the bands and people on the field it's just uh, it's quite unique in in all ways. Totally because we were even just speaking with Shelley Ware yesterday of course um, 
a legendary figure across sort of literature and, and sports and just talking that they're, they're going to be involved in a debate, sports versus literature as part of Melbourne Writers Festival. And they were saying exactly the same thing, that Melbourne just really is the embodiment of all of these different kind of cultural sporting elements. And it's yeah beautiful to have these opportunities to really platform them and celebrate them. Yeah. Has it been, has it grown less rough over the years? I wouldn't say that. Oh, okay. No, no. I still think there's um, there's that element of as much as we try and control the safety part of things for the players on the day, as soon as the siren goes, people lose their nuts. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, each year I get really concerned about oh, the safety of people and oh, someone's going too hard and the umpires aren't taking control. But the crowd love that, the players seem to love that and we've had no major incidents so i mean it's quite wild that like as an amateur i think amateurs even a stretch an amateur athlete or like just the fact that we get to play in front of so many people is like how can the adrenaline not kick in you know it's yep. a pretty wild experience nothing else like it so grace is it like being on stage is that a, a good analogy um, I think it's way more terrifying. Oh, On stage, really? you don't have like 18 other people just like running at you. And, um, you don't need a mouth guard. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. You don't need a mouth guard on stage. Um, definitely intimidating having that many people kind of around in the crowd watching. But I feel like also Community Cup isn't that much about watching the footy. I know when I went, I spent a lot of time in the bar line or <laughs> chatting to friends or patting dogs or, um, yeah, watching the streakers more than the athletes. <laughs> Tim, do you get your fix? Does it compare uh, the coaching a team that's playing in front of 12,000 people? How does it compare to your AFL days? Uh, similar. Yes, it is. The, the coaching <laughs> part is very different. I bet. Yes. Um, it's a similar vibe. You, the, the crowd noise, the whole atmosphere, um, the fact that when, you, when you're playing footy, there's a lot of good things going on in the field that you can't control. So it's always an unknown. It's not like you know exactly how things are going to unfold. Mm. So, um, yeah, I just love that nature. I love the haphazard nature of footy. Um, and then to celebrate at the end of the day with bands and, and getting together with all your friends is just sensational. There's still some extraordinarily stirring speeches that take place, though, and I've seen whiteboards and markers, <laughs> so there's, there's some planning going on, that's for sure. Yes, but I was listening this morning. I'm thinking Nat might need some quiet time to herself. She's, she needs a little tick box for, for that part where... You tick the boxes so you don't want anyone talking to you. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Massage. You don't want the coach talking to you. Just leave me alone. I'm in my own little zone to play. I'm just in it for the free massage, sports (laughs) massage before. Uh, Grace, is there an inspirational, you know, are you going to be looking for inspiration from coaches and captains and going through speeches and energising and motivating words? How how deep are you going to get into your Rock Dog co-captaincy? Yeah, I think I'm going to have to dig right in deep, actually. I'm kind of looking to cash for a bit of inspiration and uh, my co-captain, Jim Chalamet, as well, uh, to really ramp that up because I don't know how deep my words are. But I'm thinking like Aragorn, Lord of the Rings. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a cape you can borrow, actually. (laughs) Good, thank you. Well, and admit it all, where it raises so much money for RecLink as well, so all the fun is for an extraordinary cause. Now, the event is taking place in June 18. Uh, There are, what, 12,000 music-loving footy fans rock up and it sells out. So what would your advice be, you two? 
Get in early, make sure you get your tickets pre-booked because um, there's been a lot of disappointed people over the years. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's extraordinary how certainly walking to the ground and the buzz. Oh. It is, wow, yeah, it, it's unlike anything else you are ever going to likely experience, and it's just such an extraordinary day. And to take the field, having gone so often, is an obscene privilege. Yeah. So uh, I just. Referencing taking the field, Daniel. Can yeah. you give us a little bit more information about that? Oh, look, hey, you don't need me, do you? Oh, don't we be... We certainly do. Yeah, all right, yes, all right. We well, if, do. if you insist, I'll... Uh, look, I'll play the first 30 seconds of the first quarter. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll tell you what, it's it's really exciting. Head to communitycup.com.au uh, communitycup. for all the details. The pre-sale is on now. The tickets go on sale Monday the 1st of May. We've been speaking with Meghertz coach Tim Harrington and co-captain this year of the Rock Dogs, Grace Gibson. Uh, go Megas and thanks both of you. Woo! <laughs> Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.